This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of CastingAcross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Years ago, it went out of business. It was one of the first fly shops I stepped foot in. Like many other storefronts on an old Main Street, some combination of modern economic factors caused it to shutter its doors after decades of service to locals and out-of-towners. It had the reputation for catering to anyone and everyone, Politicians and mountain folk both stepped in before heading into the woods for trout. Yet it wasn't a fly shop, not in the traditional sense of the word. One could buy fly fishing gear, but you could also get some graphite arrow shafts, live night crawlers, and camp chairs. The shelves had packs of snelled hooks, boxes of target loads, and cans of beef stew. Rods and guns, reels and bows seemed to be stocked with no rhyme or reason. Crusty old skin mounts and faded Polaroids covered the wood panel interior. I wasn't aware at the time, but looking back, it was probably a lot like most sporting goods stores just a few generations ago. There was a little bit of everything, but not a lot of anything. There were flies, though. An acrylic display case sat on the counter, yellowed with age and cigar smoke. There were five pull-out trays in the case. Each contained two dozen or so small compartments for flies. Mickey fins, irresistible wolves, bitch creek nymphs, and all the other requisite patterns. Many of these flies looked ancient and frail. Some compartments never seemed to get depleted. Others never got refilled. On the counter, next to the display case, was a standard Plano tackle box. This is where the real flies could be found. Hornbug wets, pheasant tail nymphs, yellow sally stoneflies, griffiths gnats, and, of course, Woolly buggers in a few colors and sizes. These were the flies you'd want if you were fishing local waters. The box always sat open and full. Full, that is, unless something was hatching. Always leaning on the counter, behind the fly cases, was the shop owner. Along with sharing which flies were working, he was warm and forthcoming with all manner of information. Where we should fish, what the latest forecast held, 
what other streams we could try, which restaurants were worth our time. Better yet, he asked questions. He asked what we had caught, what we had tried, and what we had seen. He also shared stories, local history, and even a few flies in the house. Every bit of it, the flies, the knowledge, the ambiance, the personality, was remarkable to a teenage fly fisherman. I had been in bona fide fly shops before, but not enough to know that this store was an outlier. I didn't have much perspective, so every bit of knowledge was pertinent and practical. I didn't have money, so I wouldn't need more than flies in the occasional leader. I didn't have presumptions, so the shop was special. The store was a part of many memorable trips. I can recall specific conversations with friends as we drove into town. I can think of angling insights received and used to this day. Hours on the stream have faded in my memory, but minutes in the shop are crystal clear. It was always there, always the same. Then one day, it was gone. Undoubtedly, I've romanticized the shop in the 20 years that have passed since I last stood at the counter. I realized I was just a customer. To put a finer point on it, a customer that didn't infuse much revenue. The sudden closing of the shop felt like losing something. Part of what I truly enjoyed about fishing a certain creek was gone. Part of what made me who I was as an angler was gone. Do you know what happened to the sporting goods store downtown on Main Street? It must have closed down about 15 years ago. She kept pouring my coffee, but the waitress gave me a look. It was a, are you seriously asking me about a sporting goods store that closed down 15 years ago? Look, sorry, honey, she apologized insincerely. I have no clue. Do you have any idea who might know anything about it? I asked, trying to not sound crazy. Like one of the other waitresses or one of the regulars. I honestly have no clue. Why? Do you know the people who owned it? She seemed a little put off when I said I was from out of town and I was just passing through. Maybe to escape the conversation, she said, you could probably find business records at Town Hall. But I wasn't trying to figure out how many back taxes they owed or when they were incorporated. I just wanted to know why the fly shop closed down. The necessity wasn't anything more than what I'd made it. Nothing was riding on figuring out the fate of the business. All I was looking for was closure. But closure with a lowercase c. It wasn't a big deal. It didn't keep me up at night. I was just inquisitive because it was a loose end of a personal fly fishing strand. And fly shops close down all the time. It's a difficult market. There are only so many dollars to make and only so many customers who will spend them. With one or two exceptions, every fly shop I frequented in the late 1990s and early 2000s is gone. Hearing about some of them going belly up made sense. You can't succeed in spite of inherent challenges and yourself. Others were a shock. This little sporting goods store slash fly shop made sense inasmuch as it was a little sporting goods store slash fly shop on a mildly depressed Main Street. But you sort of expect those kinds of stores to get by. They found their niche. They're part of the socioeconomic stasis of a small town. In the 21st century, community financial ecosystems rival coal water resources when it comes to fragility. Was it the outlying area's massive subdivisions that forced operating costs to go out of whack downtown? Could the oft-quoted competitive pressure from big box stores and the internet have been the culprit? Did the owner retire? Get tired? Expire? Selfishly, the store closed at a very inopportune time. The turn of the century wasn't quite the moment for the kind of comprehensive online documentation we've grown used to. After breakfast, my family and I drove the few blocks to the main intersection. I stopped in front of the store. It was empty. Aside from the weathered and generic facade, which hadn't changed much, there was nothing tying the storefront to the shop that was once there. No signs with illustrated trout jumping out of the water, 
no glass counter and display, certainly no acrylic flybox. Ultimately, I suppose I'm content with the mystery. It's nothing more than an unanswered question born of circumstance and curiosity, like a fish pursued, hooked, fought, and lost right before having it in hand. There's a lot to look back on fodness. There's also some incompletion. Short of diving in and doing amateur detective work, I'm not going to know the fate of the shop or its owner. But I'll always remember buying my first fishing license. The countertop primer on how to use a topographic map. The antique metal fishing rod that my friend talked about buying for months and then actually bought. The first time someone offered to sell me a cigar. The first time somebody told me where to go to avoid stocked trout. The explanation of jungle cock feathers and their significance. The hand-drawn map to a spot up the mountain that included dirt road that my little sedan had no business driving on. And being chastised when I came back in didn't mention I drove a little sedan. Those moments and those memories don't really represent losing a fly shop at all. That was from two articles, one called Fly Shop Lost and Fly Shop Found. Uh, they came out earlier in 2019 and represent a fun little exercise that I endeavored to complete in finding the fate of a fly shop that I was a huge fan of back when I started fly fishing. Fly shops hold a lot of, again, romanticized memories for fly fishers. And I think that's good. I think that's right. I think that it's important that we see these places as more than just the spot to pick up a few flies or to pick up a fly rod. It truly was for me, as someone who didn't have a dad who fly fished or who didn't necessarily have some sort of organization that really taught me how to fly fish, it was very important to go to a place like this and have someone that was able to remember my face and remember my name. And even though I lived about an hour away, he was able to maintain that connection. And one of the best parts about it was the nature of the store. It was legitimately a catch-all outdoor store. As I mentioned earlier, there was camp chairs and there were wax worms and there were minnow buckets and just go right on down the list all the way to that dinty more beef stew. And so consequently, there was no air of superiority. And I know that that is a bad rap a lot of fly fishers and fly shops get. To be fair, it is gotten because it is deserved sometimes. But a place like this, there's absolutely none of it. None at all. I mean, he would take the time to show knots. He would entertain the most ridiculous questions that myself and my buddy, you know, 16-year-olds um, that were just driven there by ourselves, 14-year-olds driven there by our moms, and were asking questions about basically, show me exactly how to catch a fish. And there was, there was absolutely no judgment. It was you know, almost like the kindly uh, uncle who was happy to just do anything and everything that he could to put you on a fish. That was an incredibly great experience at a very formative time. And so this is something I think really we can really learn a lot from as individuals. And then if it so happens that you are within the fly fishing industry, and, and not even just the fly fishing industry, but if you volunteer in any capacity, if it's with your Trout Unlimited chapter or it's uh, through your local fishing game organization, just re remember that you can communicate the most essential and important ethos of fly fishing 
catch and release and environmental stewardship and things like that right alongside of here's how I can help you get on a fish as soon as possible. That They are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to have someone pass the written and oral exam on how to practice catch and release tactics before you go out and put them on a stocked rainbow trout. You do those things together. You understand there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be missteps. But the most important thing is that investment and the hearing as well as the speaking. That was another thing, and, and I mentioned it in, in the article. The questions he would ask, where'd you go? Where'd you park? How'd you approach the water? What flies were you using? Were you wearing that hat? It's neon orange. I don't know if that's such a great idea. What time did you go? Were there any other footprints on the stream? Did you see this guy? He always fishes through that stretch every Saturday morning, so if you were behind him, chances are he fished through that pool. These are things that, goodness, it's 2020. And these kind of things happened over 20 years ago, and I can still remember them very vividly because it was somebody who took the time out of their busy schedule. Well, let's be fair. It wasn't a particularly busy schedule. Sleepy little Main Street, tiny little mid-Atlantic town, not a whole lot of foot traffic. I rarely remember there being multiple customers, and the customers that did come in, I can remember them going in, grabbing stuff, putting cash on the counter, and walking out. It'd be a, a perfectly legal transaction. It was that kind of place. But still... Time was taken out of the schedule to help a young fly fisher. So this is, sure, some good information and maybe an admonishment or an encouragement to a fly shop or a guide or to somebody who owns a lodge or whatever. But for the vast majority of us, I think this is a reminder that this guy is not a huge fly fisher. I might even remember a conversation where he was talking about using a fly rod because it allowed him to put night crawlers into spots that he couldn't with a spinning rod but you know what to each his own as long as he wasn't poaching then fine do what you want to do use a fly rod with a worm use a fly rod with power bait more power to you but i wanted to fly fish my buddy wanted to fly fish and so he took the time to help us do what we want to do so i have a handful of flies still that i know are from that shop and they stay in my fly box i really don't use them but they're there because they are a reminder and a link back to that spot. I have a handful of articles about fly shops on castingacross.com, and I'd encourage you to check them out. If you use the search bar on the right-hand side of the website, you can just put in fly shop and a bunch of stuff will come up. The first ones that will come up are those articles that got a lot of buzz uh, earlier in 2019 about the top-rated fly shops in all 50 states. And I know some people didn't like those, and some people loved them, and especially if the fly shop that you're a fan of was included on there. But once you scroll down past those, there's some profiles of some fly shops. And uh, this is a, a topic that is really close to my heart because, like I said, it didn't have somebody who was directly in my life that was an expert in fly fishing. So I relied at a young age on fly shop employees to give me information. And so I'm indebted in a sense, but it's also just, it, it's right what I love to do and love to, to experience, you know, this place that is well organized and has all the fun stuff and generally has a pretty good ambiance and environment that revolves around fishing, but certainly touches on numbers of things on the periphery of fly fishing. So fly shops are great. So there's there's a handful of articles in there, but like I said, it, there's more to come. I have interviews that I have been sitting on, uh, in some cases for years, of putting something together. But if there's a fly shop that you think deserves a little bit of attention that maybe hasn't gotten it before, 
I am more than happy to reach out to them. So feel free to drop me a line, Matthew at castingacross.com. I'd love to maybe do a little piece on the shop. If they're local, go in there and talk to them. Um, I'm in New England, of course, and get down to the Mid-Atlantic quite a bit, out to the Midwest sometimes. So uh, happy to do that. That's a lot of fun to go and spend some time with a fly shop owner or employees and talk about what they do, how they do it, and really how they serve and function as a hub for the fly fishing community. Sometimes speaking like that sounds a bit like superlative, like, are you really a hub of a community? And in some cases, in some small towns, on some popular streams, that's exactly what the fly shop is. It doesn't make the fly fishing, but it certainly adds an enormous component to it, and its absence would absolutely be felt if it was gone. So that's just one more reason to support your local fly shop. When you buy that fly rod, don't do it online go in there and even instead of a few extra bucks that investment you are buying into being a part of something I talked about that quite a bit last week when I talked about if you uh, exactly know which fly rod you want this week on castingacross.com two articles the first one is called fly fishing books seven so I have seven of these articles and I made a little Instagram video and a lot of people watch that and I think I might try to do something video related with uh, these book posts because it's really nice to be able to hold it up and talk about it, share my thoughts. I think reading matters. If you're not reading fly fishing books, read something. The way that reading engages your brain is so very different from what you're doing right now, which is listening to a podcast. I know that my retention when I read content is vastly different than when I listen to it. I love listening to things. I'm constantly listening to podcasts, but I do it when I can't read. I do it when I'm driving or folding uh, laundry or mowing the lawn or things like that. But reading engages your brain in a different way. And I think for the vast majority of us, I know all sorts of people learn in different ways, but for the vast majority of us, if you're trying to get some concepts, reading it, and especially if there's diagrams next to it, so you're getting this visual component along with it, that's where you're going to get your fly fishing tactics, you're going to get your leader formulas, you're going to get some of these diagrams about where in a stream the trout will lie. That's awesome stuff. But anyway, so this this article, the seventh edition, uh, four books, one's called Keystone Fly Fishing, maybe the best fly fishing guidebook I've seen in years, and two major reasons, big, colorful pictures, which is just fun to look at. And secondly, there is a number of authors, uh, effectively a couple of authors per region of Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is an enormous state. I believe the statistic is correct that there is more miles of stream in Pennsylvania than any other state in the U.S., outside of Alaska, of course. I could be wrong, but I think that's accurate. So consequently, there's tons of fly water. I mean, you can fly fish for trout, outside of Pittsburgh and outside of Philadelphia, and then the rest of the state as well. So uh, Keystone Fly Fishing by Headwater Books is a great book. You can read some more thoughts on the article. Same thing for the next three. Night Fishing for Trout by James Bashline. Awesome book. One of the coolest covers if you get the 1973 edition like I have. Um, but it's a great book, Pennsylvania book, um, but that's totally applicable anywhere you fish, especially for trout at night. And it blends the narrative with the technique, which is a really, really cool genre that I feel like is almost 
particular just to fly fishing. I'm sure hunting and, you know, hopscotch and stamp collecting have books like that too, but uh, I like it and it is a common thread in a lot of the, my favorite fly fishing books. Third one, Catskill Rivers. This is an enormous book. I mean, the thing's, you know, a foot wide and 18 inches tall or whatever, but uh, if you fly fish in the United States, some of the things you do, names of flies, names of people who have created techniques and pieces of gear, you probably owe a lot of that to the Catskill region of New York. And this is a great book that kind of gives a history on the area. It's, it's a good reference book. It's not a great start at the beginning and go to the end book unless maybe you're from the area, but it's a good reference book. And I've used it time and time again for the website and for personal reasons to just kind of get some information. Last one is called Tight Lines, and this is an anthology of posts, posts, that's online talk, of articles from the Yale Angler's Journal. And this was a journal that was founded by James Prosek, and his awesome artwork is found throughout this little book. Every one of these books, with is the exception of Keystone Fly Fishing, is out of print, I believe. Um, regardless, you can hop on the Amazon and find them for only a few bucks, if you don't mind a few dings and maybe a uh, taped up dust jacket. So depending on how you feel about your books, you can get them really easily. If you want nice copies, they're available also. But check that out, and then at the bottom of that, article. There's fly fishing books one through six there also. So if my math serves me correctly, that's another 24 book recommendations. And like I said, I'll probably turn around and do something more with those in the near future. Wednesday's article was called Bears, Bugs, and Bows. And this is a short little story. It involves bears, no bears were actually seen. Oh, no, wait, that's not good advertisement. Maybe there was bears. I don't know. There was definitely big bugs. And there's a rainbow trout. So uh, read that article, Bears, Bugs, and Bows. This week's recommendation on the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast is the Costa Del Mar Sunrise Silver Mirror Sunglasses. Expect an article coming about these sunglasses and probably a podcast in the near future. Not the Costas in particular, but just the idea of lens selection. And the long and the short of it is this. Think about how many fly rods you have. Now, you might only have one fly rod, but I would say you are the exception. Most of us have two or three, and why do we have two or three fly rods? Or even within trout fishing or saltwater fishing, why do we have two or three fly rods in the three to five weight or in the eight to ten weight category? It's because there are going to be conditions that dictate a slightly different approach and that warrants the expense of a couple hundred dollars more to approach the fish. All right, so that's that's established kind of the, the, the groundwork for my argument, right? The other side of it is this. Once you have your rod, reel, line, leader, flies, what is the next most essential piece of equipment when you go fly fishing? I believe it's my sunglasses. I have multiple times, if I forgot sunglasses, gone to Walmart and bought a $5 pair of polarized sunglasses because especially for trout fishing, when you're fishing to rising fish or you're doing some sight fishing, same thing when you're fishing for bass in the rivers or if you're waiting just for safety, you need polarized glasses. So put those two things together. Polarized glasses are essential. You probably have multiple sets of gear for various circumstances why wouldn't you have a second pair of sunglasses if the conditions dictate? And I have found my 
favorite new second pair of sunglasses, and that is Costa del Mar, my favorite sunglass company, uh, Fantails, my favorite frames, and now I have some Costa Fantails in Sunrise Silver Mirror, which are a very light yellow polarized lens. They're the 580 glass. They have the mirrored lens, so they're very scratch resistant. They are very smudge resistant, and they cut out glare. But I have worn these on some crazy gray days in New England, both driving and on the water, and I absolutely love them. So I'm sold. I'm convinced on these. I'm throwing out this recommendation before I put out a formal article on sunglass selection or a podcast on sunglass selection just because now's the time to buy new fly fishing gear. So if you are at all interested in the coasters in particular, feel free to shoot me an email or chirp on social media, but uh, I would suggest checking them out. I like the fantails. They fit my face. I had them uh, previously in a a different lens, um, but now I have them in the sunrise silver mirror. And so that was a very simple thing. I didn't have to even go try them on. I just knew those lenses uh, are what I wanted. Those frames fit my face, boom, get them, and uh, they are absolutely working out, and it just makes a lot of sense, and I'm almost kicking myself for not having moved on uh, getting a second pair of very different lenses uh, much, much sooner. Thank you for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. <laughs>